When you're acting as your doodle's teacher during training, do you know their learning style? Take our exclusive fun and free quiz to find out at thedoodlepro.com slash learning and make training more fun and successful. Thank you for joining me for part two of my interview with the expert on separation anxiety and its treatment. Make sure to catch our episode from last week with part one, where Melena and I discuss what does separation anxiety look like? Did the pandemic and all of us working from home create a epidemic of separation anxiety or did it give our dogs a unique advantage? What separation anxiety feels like for our dogs and how to recognize if they are experiencing it. Today, we're going to dive into what to do if your dog is experiencing separation anxiety. And she's going to bust some myths and explain what not to do. Watch out. They are some of the most common advice that you'll find when you go to Google. Doodle breed dogs are easy to love, but can be challenging to parent. I'm doodle expert Corinne Gearhart, also known as the Doodle Pro, and I'm here to help doodle parents have a more fulfilling and rewarding experience with their doodles. No one has professionally worked with as many different doodle breeds or has more experience with doodles than I have. And I love to share my expertise in a fun, compassionate, and non-judgmental way. From my years of work and education in the pet care and dog training industry, I have an incredible network of skilled training, grooming, and veterinary professionals to share their knowledge with you and give you the doodle-specific answers you're looking for. I hope you enjoy today's episode as I help you parent your doodle like a pro. Stay tuned to the end for an exclusive discount from Melina on her program where you can work independently at home on your dog's separation anxiety. Let's dive in. This is a fantastic interview. An important piece that Melina drives home over and over in her book and with your trainings directly to pet parents in Mission Possible is separation anxiety is fixable. When you're talking about suspending absences, Having a dog with separation anxiety already feels really isolating. It does. That is not forever. It that is so not. By, and it should be a relief. It should be because I get it. Not only as a professional, having done this for so many years, but I get it as a dog mom too. One of my own dogs suffered from separation anxiety and that's another story in and of itself. But so I understand that overwhelm that exists that, oh my gosh, my dog is six months old. I'm going to have to manage my life around him for the next 15 years or more. Right. And that is absolutely not the case. We have to remember that this is temporary. The behavior modification process and the correlating management of the dog's alone time is temporary. And I'm very commonly asked, how long is temporary? And unfortunately, I'll get that right out of the way now. I can't answer because your dog, each and every person's dog is an individual. The environment is unique. The dog is unique. The pet parents are unique. There are so many influencing factors. So I can't say every dog is through this by X number of however long. What I do tell people when I talk to them initially 
when they're inquiring for help, when they ask me that question, which they always do, they always say, how long will it take? And I will say, I want you to think in terms of months, not weeks, but I also want you to think in terms of months, not years. Because I can't say X number of months, but I can say that we're not looking at a five-year plan here for most dogs. Sure, there's the occasional outlier, as there is in every type of behavior. But for the most part, we are thinking in terms of months, not years, thinking in terms of months, not weeks. And you mentioned in the book that you see every separation and anxiety case as severe not related to how much destruction they're doing or how chronic the barking is. But if they're experiencing that level of panic, then we see it as severe and it needs care and treatment. That's right. There's no competition, if you will, on distress. If I break my arm and you break your arm and we're talking about the pain scale of one to 10. Are we in competition over that? No, no. It is painful for you and it's painful for me. And that's the same with anxiety and distress, right? Mm -hmm. I don't, these dogs are not like, they're so only worried. Panic, panic is a very serious Mm -hmm. experience to go through. And so any level of panic, despite the outward manifestation, is important for us to recognize. And when I say that outward manifestation, sometimes I'll get calls from people and they'll be like, my dog only whines and drools. And I'm like, yeah, let's talk about that because that is panic. I don't care if it doesn't, it's not inconveniencing your neighbors. It is severely impacting your little being. And then we have other people, of course, that contact us and say, my dog's ripping down the door and the neighbors and the landlord and everybody. But that Uh doesn't mean that dog is more distressed. It just means that the outward display, the way the dog presents is different. And yes, it's more inconvenient to the client, But let's boil it back down to what the dog is experiencing. And both of those dogs are experiencing something extremely aversive, which is panic and distress and fear. What do you say to people who say they need to get used to it or they'll grow out of it? Yeah. First thing, the literature tells us they do not grow out of it. And period, done. Okay. The literature also tells us that in most cases, the worsening of the behavior occurs when the dog is continually exposed to alone time that is over their panic point, if you will. So do we really want to take that risk? Do we really want to take that risk of actually worsening this problem? Yeah. And so I talk to clients about that often. And say, listen, let's go backwards a little and talk about this whole temporary situation. If we put in a little bit of time towards behavior modification now, 
in the next 15 years are footloose and fancy free, where you're not going to have to wor- worry about your dog when alone. Yeah. If you say, ah, I don't want to do that. It's probably, he'll probably just grow out of it. You risk making the problem exacerbating the issue. And you also risk pushing it out and out and out to the point that maybe if you don't address it, you will be spending the next 15 years worrying about your dog destroying and vocalizing and urinating and defecating and all the things. Yes. And I really talk to guardians about let's take care of this now because later harder period yes and you have a longer road to them feeling peace and you we have mentioned a couple myths one of the biggest suggestions that people are given when their dog is experiencing separation anxiety is give them a frozen good old food puzzle so that is still up at the top of the list of suggestions and you address it beautifully can you talk to us more about that you bet so we're talking about food and food puzzles in general here. Uh, and that you're right is still the number one recommendation for separation anxiety dogs. And there's a multiple multifaceted amount of reasons as to why that is actually not the suggestion that we should be making. The first, let's just get that one out of the way. The majority of separation anxiety dogs don't touch the food when they're right. alone. So how is it helping at all, right? Yes. So let's just, okay, all those dogs, we get it. We're not using food with them. Now, there are, of course, a large percentage of the dog population that are like, if food is present, must consume. And mm-hmm. so they all eat when left alone. The idea, which is a logical one, I do understand it. The idea behind giving the dog a food toy is we think we're associating alone time with something good. But let me pose this. First, two things. One, how many of you with your own separation anxiety dog, or if it's a client that you've seen this, The dog hunkers down with that bully stick or with that toy. And you're like, look, he's fine and he's doing great. And it takes six minutes for him to finish that frozen food toy. Uh huh. And at six minutes and 15 seconds, he's howling. So did the food toy actually create the positive association that we think that it was supposed to? No, I would venture to say that it caused a distraction in some ways. But we can't distract a dog for a four-hour absence. If he, if we let him eat for four hours, which he won't, because he will get initiated, but if we let him eat for four hours, we would have a 700-pound dog. We can't do that. So that's one of the things. The other very important thing, and pay attention to this because For the dog pros, they'll get this. For the average dog guardian, this may be a little bit new. We are trying to actually associate alone time with safety, not something fantastical and not food falling from the sky necessarily. We want it to be a safe environment. 
when we are teaching a dog, particularly when there's already a feeling of fear, panic, anxiety with a stimulus, the order of events that we teach things is extremely important. Mm -hmm. I will I'll use the example of reactivity because I think it's a little, even a little bit more clear. So imagine that your dog is afraid of general strangers. And every time you go for a walk, you say, here's some food because there's going to be a stranger walking up. Over time, the dog will go, cheese means scary person approaching. And that is exactly the opposite order of events that we would use in training. For those of you that want to geek out, we talk about antecedent arrangements. Yeah. But order of events is really what we're talking about here. So if the food item predicts the scary thing, before long, the food item is going to be equally as scary as the scary thing. And there's no way that we can, or very few ways, that we can give the food after we've walked out the door. Like it just by by virtue of how matter works in this right. world. <laughs> and so that whole order of events thing is backwards. And what we tend to see is dogs that maybe in the beginning were like, yeah, I'll hunker down with this frozen peanut butter food toy. But for time, even the sight of mom stuffing that food toy, they start to drool and shake and whine and get distressed. And we don't want to create that kind of association. The most important reason, though, that food, I don't think, should be used, at least not in the beginning stages of a protocol, is that as, as a means of training and implementing behavior modification, we need to become very good at reading our dog's body language. And seeing at what point in time the dog starts to become uncomfortable. And then we see that discomfort starts to lead to some fear, anxiety, stress, et cetera. We want to only train beneath that point where the dog is uncomfortable. And if the dog is happily appearing is the key word here yeah. to be consuming the food we're like, oh, he's fine for five minutes or however long. But what we're doing is muddying the body language that we really critically need to see in order to effectively help the dog learn that alone time is safe through training. And so that food does really muddy up our training. And it also doesn't help from that association. Right. So like, why? And I really want to make sure that everybody hears this loud and clear. As a positive reinforcement trainer for well over 20 years, I will daily shout from the mountaintops that using food, particularly in training and behavior, is okay. the most efficient and effective means to acquiring those behaviors. Separation anxiety is a little unique because we mm -hmm. can't get the arguments right. Because the food muddies the behavior that we need to be seeing and because it serves simply as a distraction. And when I say distraction 
and the dog appearing to be okay. I'm I'm the first person to admit I can cry and be anxious while eating my bowl of mint chip ice cream. And <laughs> sit and stay right there. We'll be back right after this quick break. Dog's body language is a foreign language to us humans. Are you wondering how fluent you are? Take our free quiz at thedoodlepro.com slash body and find out how fluent you are in reading dog's body language. Yes. I might stop but, crying even while I'm eating it. I'm not. And then resume afterwards. Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> And so many of these dogs are actually what we talk about conflicting motivation. They're hardwired to like food is present, must eat. But that doesn't mean that they aren't experiencing anxiety, that they are conflicted. They're eating because they are, their instinct tells them to do so. But that doesn't mean that the anxiety is not present. And I would venture to say, since we see them turn into howling and other signs of distress within a few moments of finishing that food toy, then yeah, they were not happily consuming. They were probably very conflicted at the same time. And you describe in the book that the trap we would fall into then is the peanut butter isn't delicious enough. So now we need to go to the next level of we're going to bring out the cheese or whatever is the most enticing. And it just keeps stacking until some dogs are refusing food altogether Altogether. because they see it as linked to what's going to be really scary and terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. That is association is very powerful. It, It is one of the most powerful components of how we navigate the world and how we train dogs and other species. And if the association of food that started out with kibble and then went to canned and then went to peanut butter and then went to cheese and then went to raw meat and escalation, we are unintentionally, I realize, but we are truly teaching the dog that food and helping them generalize that food is a scary and awful thing. And that is, we can't do that. We can't do that to our dogs. Yes. And using rewards, which is typically something like food or play, is is such an integral part of positive reinforcement training. People will also get advice on using aversives. If the neighbor is complaining or you've gotten a noise complaint and the landlord says enough's enough, put an e-collar on or put a bark collar on. Can you briefly share why that could really backfire for people? Yeah. I think the first piece of that is mm-hmm. I understand the desperation. I yeah. really do. And I have talked on the phone through people's tears time and time and time again that have used tools like a bark collar, shock collar, or as also is commonly recommended is the can full of pennies and you throw it against the crate or banger in the crate. Any of these methodologies 
that that I'm talking about, the only reason that they can work is that they are instilling either pain or fear in the animal. And first and foremost, is that what we really want to do? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves personally. But let's think about going back to our original discussion about this is panic. This is a phobia. Involuntary, as you point out. And involuntary, right? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, and I say, I'm going to add a fearful stimulus to an already fear, panic, anxious animal. Wow. (laughs) Do we actually think that is going to help with their fear and anxiety? No. In almost every single case. We actually make it worse because now alone time is not only scary, it's more scary because I keep getting this horrible electric shock or this terrible noise happens or I get sprayed in the face with something really stinky or like citronella or something. And so we're actually causing the problem to be worse. I do want to make one caveat. Because many people will argue with me. I put a bark collar on my dog and he stopped vocalizing when, when left alone. <laughs> yeah, it can help mask certain symptoms. But I want people to remember that dog is just because he's not vocalizing doesn't mean he's not terrified. And so oftentimes what we start to see is, okay, they are no longer vocalizing which doesn't usually, isn't usually a permanent thing, but sometimes they stop a little while. So no longer vocalizing, but now urinating and defecating and drooling and trembling and shedding their coats because they're distressed so high. So it's not really working, even if for a temporary amount of time, it can reduce the barking. I've asked you many ways that we don't help our dogs when they're experiencing this level of distress. How would you describe the treatment plans that do work? The treatment plans that do work fall into gentle, humane, also very systematic and very gradual. The technical term for the way that we modify this behavior is called systematic desensitization. Nobody needs to say that big, long mouthful of words. But I want to remind people that there are two words there. Yes, desensitization, which means gradual exposure, but also systematic. It is not willy-nilly haphazard. Like today, I'm going to do a minute. Tomorrow, I'm going to do four minutes. And these decisions are actually very nuanced as to how to systematically introduce the dog and expose them to the scary thing, which in this case is alone time, uh, without them experiencing distress. And so I think the biggest complaint, if you will, that we get about this appropriate and proper way to work with separation anxiety dogs is people 
professionals and average guardians alike will say that that's too long. That's going to take too long. I just want to help people remember maybe looking at our human condition as an example. If you had a, a child or you yourself were experiencing anxiety and depression and other forms of mental illness or distress, and you went to a counselor, would you say in four sessions, I need to be done with that? Forever. Forever. <laughs> yeah. You need me in four sessions or I'm out of here. Yes. Uh, and we just, that isn't how this works for mm -hmm. humans or for dogs. And because we love our dogs so very much, I feel we owe it to them to give them this gentle and humane way of helping their welfare, mm -hmm. helping them psychologically and physiologically, by the way. One of the things that is amazing to me is dogs that have been experiencing distress about alone time for long periods of time. The common thing that we start to see is all sorts of GI, all sorts of gastrointestinal upset, constant. Uh, we see constant skin irritations. We start to see immunosuppressed issues. We so in other words, and that's going to be different for every dog, but in other words, we yeah. know as humans, we know that constant stress results in physical problems. And that is no different for our dogs. And so I think we just, we owe it to them to be kind, to be patient and to let them make progress based on what they are able to handle successfully. So that was the long way of saying the protocol that we use today to work with these dogs is both gradual and intentional, purposeful, mm -hmm. and systematic. And I think it's one of the reasons that I often encourage people to work with a professional, whether you work with them a little bit or for daily or just yeah. a couple times, whatever it is. Um, it took me minimally 10 years of my career to understand how to implement this. And mm -hmm. it's a 15-week program that has spans over more than 100 of hours of education that we teach our certified separation anxiety trainers. Yeah. So don't expect the average new or experienced dog guardian to understand some of the details and nuances of how to implement that gradual, systematic, purposeful process of exposure. And those certified separation anxiety trainers, the CSATs, they are doing all that education so you don't have to and help you develop that plan. So you explain that it's 20 to 30 minutes a day. Do you say five days a week? What, how for the pet parent? So that is doable. The suspended absence piece is challenging and short term. This is fixable. Right. And you mentioned coat problems and gastro problems like skin problems and upset stomachs doodles are renowned for having both of those chronically and 
poodles, which they are at least half of, really run pretty high on the anxiety scale, just genetically. And so that's something really great to keep in mind as further motivation to tackle this. I highly recommend to trainers and pet parents who want to learn more about separation anxiety, your new book. But I know you have two programs that if somebody's already experiencing this and they want to get a solution with their dog, you have Mission Possible. And I think that's a on-demand course that you could do in their own time. Is that right? That's right. It is a self-paced online course. Uh, It's very comprehensive. I was so loath about the terrible information that people you could randomly find on the internet that I'm like, I've got to create a program where people can at least get the right information. Yes. I developed that program in 2016, I think, or 17. And my intention was to help your average pet parent to didn't know where to turn and what to do with their separation anxiety dog to give them clear, clean plan and approach to explain as many of those nuances that I could possibly explain. And the program is lifetime access. You can go at your own pace. And in that course, there are places that you can post comments, ask questions, et cetera. And I and a couple of my colleagues answer those seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's too much. That's not a lot. People aren't, I just, I know how isolating this can feel. And I don't want people to feel alone. And so I I want people to know they can reach out for support in that course. And even if they don't, even if they're shy and they don't ask questions, we have Mm -hmm. such a history of so many comments and questions that it's, you don't feel alone there because you can hear everybody else's experiences both their experiences of feeling sad and frustrated as well as their celebratory moments that we see so many of. So I really, I think it's a very comprehensive program that can help not just the pet parents. What we Mm -hmm. found after I launched this program was that about half of the people that sign up for Mission Possible are dog trainers. Uh, I, I understand why. Yes. I didn't. It was kind of a surprise to me. But it's a great way as a dog professional to see how we deliver information to your average dog guardian mm-hmm. and how the process works for them and so on and so forth. So I welcome dog professionals to take advantage of it as a little small foray into how to yes. work with them. Yeah. And if a family really wants a customized plan, as you said, meeting the dog, who they are and where they're at, and your CSATs even can observe the dog virtually and give you insight when you're outside, et cetera, how would they work with a CSAT trainer? It's usually virtually, correct? It's 100% virtually. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a funny story about that. I was telling someone this the other day. I moved to exclusively virtual work in about 2009 Mm -hmm. and I stopped doing in-person 
I got a lot of pushback and a lot from people in our industry. Yeah. And I got a lot of pushback from, from my clients too. You have to come meet my dog and me in person. And I was like, actually, this is actually more efficient and effective as a means of working with separation anxiety. And I'm never one to say I told you, but I'm going to say I told you so in this case. (laughs) When the pandemic hit and everyone was scrambling, like, how do we switch to virtual? I was like, I don't know. I've been doing this for 10 years. I don't know what you've mastered that. (laughs) Just now your clients know how to use Zoom and they don't need to be taught. (laughs) Exactly right. And that was a game changer for sure. But yes, yes, it is all done virtually. And the way that CSATs work is we start out with an initial assessment where we observe the dog. We have a meeting and a conversation, usually via Zoom, about what we've observed, how we're going to start and proceed, all the things in that initial assessment. And then Based on that initial assessment, the CSAT writes the very first, just one day of training exercises. And the training exercises are what we as CSATs call mission. Uh So you get your first mission based on that initial assessment. Now, after completing that first mission, the pet parent is asked and required to put some notes in. And those notes are what we read and thereby base the very next day's training on. So this is not a cookie cutter plan. Not even, we're not even giving you like three or four days in advance. We're like, we give you today. And grow is a hundred percent based on what the dog experienced today. And so it's a very interactive process. And one of the wonderful ways that we're able to do this is by using shared documents and things. And because we're gathering so much information, we actually tend to do all sorts of charts and graphs and figure out some pretty important elements of what is positively or negatively impacting that animal. Some dogs are doing great at nine o'clock in the morning, but they're struggling at 5 p.m. Okay. We would have never have pinned that down had we not right. been tracking that data very carefully. So we really lean into that data. And one of my idols, wonderful woman named Dr. Susan Friedman, talks about collecting that data and using it in such a way that we are able to dynamically pivot and adjust on a day-to-day basis. Whereas if we didn't have that data, we would be doing retroactive. Oh, I get, let's make the, oh, we have to wait and see. Let me know next week how it went. Yes. (laughs) Which is something that virtual lends itself to the traditional trainer coming to your home. Are you going to a class? Couldn't do And just their presence would change the whole dynamic. You want to actually see what they're like when they're experiencing isolation and build up from there. I see CSAT share on social media with permission from their clients, like the victories of the dog just sprawled out on their back, sound asleep and been like, this is 32 minutes in. 
where they couldn't go two minutes alone and just you can feel the CSATs like the victory is shared with the pet parent and how close they get. Absolutely. We, I think one of the big pushbacks that I had in 2009 when I went virtually is you just can't build a relationship with your clients. And I would say it's exactly the opposite. And we are an intrinsic part of our clients' family. We work with them five days a week. Yes. And we know about the weddings and the births and the all the things that are happening because we're so closely working with the client and we do, we are a team and we celebrate even the smallest little victories together. And I tell brand new students, you're not going to believe me, but later you can say, oh my gosh, you were right. There is nothing more riveting than watching a dog sleep. When you do this work, you're like, still sleeping. Oh, now he's on his back. This is the most exciting thing ever. I need popcorn. (laughs) It is like the joy that it brings to not just dog mom or dog dad, but us. Like it's the most rewarding work that I could ever imagine doing. We're so lucky that you were doing it for us. And for the leadership that you've given on this topic, I know that you have a discount for our listeners. If they want to enjoy your program, Mission Possible, can you share that for us? Yes. And I think it's easy to remember. It is Doodle 22, as in the year, Doodle 22. And that'll be available for you. It gives you over a little over 50% off of our program. It's already really affordable, but it makes it extremely affordable. And remember, there's lifetime access. It's not a recurring fee. You can still ask questions and comments if you're struggling a month or two into it. And oh, I can share personally, I'll be doing that investment because I appreciate that you welcome trainers doing it as I am always sending those clients to CSATs, I would love to understand more like what they're working on and how they're working together. I really want people to understand that the best way to work with a separation anxiety dog is to not do it alone. And I don't mean just a trainer, the village that you can and should create that may include dog professionals like trainers and dog walkers or dog sitters. But I think it should also, and professionals also like your veterinarian or even a veterinary behaviorist. But also in that village should be your friends, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors, anybody that's willing to take a piece of that journey with you should be in your village. There are so many creative solutions, by the way, to to managing and suspending those absences. And neighbors and friends, family, they don't have to do it every day. Once a week, when you need to go to a doctor's appointment and a grocery store and your kid's soccer game or whatever, hey, the college kid around the corner probably would love to eat out of your refrigerator and get your free Wi-Fi, right? You can text on their phone. Your doctor relaxed, yes. 
Uh, and so create that village and mm-hmm. help yourself to not feel so isolated by having people that can support you in a empathetic and kind way to helping you, helping your dog and keep that whole village as part of your journey. I think that's beautiful. While you're supporting your dog through this, you, the human side of the leash deserves support as well. They really do. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Doodle Pro Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And I invite you to follow me on Instagram at the Doodle Pro for behind the scenes peeks at all of the adorable doodles I work with daily.